All right, so today is the first Sunday of the month, which means we have our question and answers. Um, and we, uh, we had one question put in the box, and then a couple were asked um, outside of the box. And one was asked um, a few weeks ago. I was somewhere else, and someone asked this question. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't ask my own questions, but I will steal questions from other places sometimes when I think they're interesting questions that uh, we may not have thought about and things. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. This is the one that, um, this is the one that I heard when I was um, somewhere else. Not 2 Kings 1. 2 Kings chapter 5. Um, and I had never thought about this, and that's why I wanted to include it uh, in our question uh, study this afternoon. And that is, why does no one seem to have a problem being around Naaman when he had leprosy? Have y'all ever thought about that? I, you know, I, I never thought about why. Second Kings chapter 5, verse number 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And when the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were the prophet, sorry, were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Y'all ever wondered why? All right, let's just, let's just look at this setting, okay? Naaman has a wife who is, who is at home, and he is, um, he is taking care of his family, it seems like. And he's very popular in the, the king's guard, the king's army, and he's got servants, and he's got people under him, and he has... A, an audience with the king of Syria, right? He just goes in and talks to the king of Syria, and yet he's a leper. I thought the Bible says that if a leper, uh, if a leper was uh, around, then people would shun him. That he was, in, in, in the Bible law, he was supposed to walk around with his hand over his mouth, screaming, leper. I'm a leper. I'm a leper. Stay away from me. Why does no one seem to have a problem with Naaman going in with the king, Having a wife, staying at home, being over all of these people. Um, and I, I just never really thought about that question until this person asked it. And so I thought I would go and, and do a little study on it. Here's what, um, here's what I found. Today, if you, first off, do not Google leprosy and then look at the Google images. Um, leprosy, Hansen's disease. Hansen's, Hansen's disease is what we call leprosy today. It's a bacterial infection in the spinal cord. And um, it, it essentially causes your body to reject things like skin cells and that sort of thing. So people with leprosy, with Hansen's disease, will have uh, hands that, that turn in and curl up and, and kind of turn into claws. Their, their toes will do the same. Their skin turns white. Sometimes those appendages will will fall off, will be eaten 
because of bacteria and that sort of thing. Um, and it's something today that even though we don't deal with it, you know, in America, we don't really hear about leprosy very much because we can treat it now. But there are still places in India and third world countries where leprosy is a problem and they still have leper colonies. And if you get leprosy, you still have to move away because they don't want it to, to spread as much. Now, it still happens in America. In fact, it's carried by uh, animals like armadillos and that sort of thing. So leprosy is a thing. It's still a thing. It's always been a thing. It's called Hansen's disease in today's medical journals. Now, the difference is, turn to Leviticus chapter 13. Leviticus chapter 13. Um, you know, when you get uh, in, in three weeks, when you get to the book of Leviticus, uh, and it's time to read the book of Leviticus in a, in, in a single week, um, you may, because of speed and that sort of thing, you may actually end up glossing over some passages in the book of Leviticus. Don't do that, because I want to show you some of the gems that are in the book of Leviticus, okay? If you have a, if you have a um, humor like mine, which most of you do not, I understand that, but if you have a humor like mine, and you read the book of Leviticus, you'll come across sections like this. Leviticus chapter 13, verse 40. Leviticus 13, 40. If a man, man's hair falls out of his head, he is bald. He is clean. If a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead. He is clean. But, okay, just pause right there. Did you know the book of Leviticus talks about male pattern baldness? I mean, to me, that's hilarious. Anyways, so if he has baldness on his head, he's bald and he is clean. He's not dirty. He's not defiled. If he has baldness on his forehead, he is okay, which means, guys, that most of us are doing pretty good. All right? Now, chapter 13, verse 42. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. How many times can Moses fit bald head and bald forehead into one passage? Okay. Then the priest shall examine him. And if the disease swelling is reddish white on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of a leprous disease on the skin of the body, he's a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease, shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He's unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's the law regarding leprosy in the Old Testament. And he says, if, he, if a man's bald, it's fine. If he has male pattern baldness, he's fine. But if on his head or on his body somewhere, he has a reddish white spot or something that looks leprous, leprous to the priest, he is to be called unclean. You remember that the law of Moses is not just a religious law. It is not just a civil law. It's also dietary and cleanliness wrapped up in there. Biblical leprosy is not necessarily Hansen's disease. Biblical leprosy can be defined as anything that is abnormal 
on the skin. So I have psoriasis on my hands at times. I would be called leprous. About once every month, I'd be called leprous. If you have eczema, that is a leprous disease in the Old Testament scriptures. Any abnormality on the skin. Because they don't have the means to test the spinal cord to see if you have the bacteria that leads to Hansen's disease that is extremely contagious by uh, any kind of bodily fluids, any touching of the affected area. They don't have the tests, right? Remember, sometimes we read the Old Testament as if it's 2017, 2018 now, but that's, they didn't have these things. The Old Testament law is as much a civil law as a religious law, also as a law of cleanliness, because they don't have the ability to test for Hansen's disease and that sort of thing. So anything, if, if you don't know, the best, best way to keep yourself safe is to make sure that if anything is possible, you make sure that you're clean from it. Why is Naaman's, why is Naaman allowed to come into uh, the prophet's household? Why is he allowed to speak with the prophet or the king or have people underneath him or live at home with his family and so forth and so on? The Syrians did not have the same religious law that the, that the, the Jews did. They didn't follow it at least. And so Syrians apparently made a distinction between what looked like leprosy and what looked like something else. Naaman probably didn't have Hansen's disease. He probably had some other type of skin defect, uh, some type of psoriasis, eczema, something like that, that was debilitating, but not so debilitating that he wouldn't be able to do his job. Notice that, that he's still doing his job just fine. But his leprosy, his leprous disease, was something that was abnormal. Uh, but it was not, apparently, it was not Hansen's disease. So that's just an interesting question that, that I heard that, that really made me think. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you hear these questions that don't really make a lot of sense and you dig into them and you find gems like in Leviticus where it's talking about male pattern baldness or you hear about, you know, you see the difference in why their cultures would believe one thing and other things. So anyways, question number two, turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> Let me flip over there real quick. All right, Acts chapter 20. This is a long one. This was sent in um, online to us. There are times when we cancel the afternoon worship like last year or other times when we do not. I know some churches in our area canceled the second services because of Christmas or New Year's and so forth. Uh, when did it become tradition to have multiple worship services on Sundays? Or is, it, or is that something that is in the Bible? So that's true. In the past, we, last year, we did not have afternoon service because it was Christmas Day. This year it was different, so we kept our schedule normal. Some churches in our area and all over the world decided to not have afternoon services, not have evening services because of one thing or another, Christmas Eve and so forth. So the question is, um, when did it become tradition to have two services? Um, and is that something that is biblical in nature? I'll say this. It's not biblical in nature, 
Um, but that does not necessarily mean that it is sinful to have two worship services. Otherwise, every person here is now in sin, and we need to all come forward at the end and ask for prayers from each other, even though we're all sinners. They're going to wait till next Sunday to ask for prayers from them. So, Acts 20 and verse 7 is the only time that we have insight, the only real time that we have insight into a worship service in the New Testament. Um, on the first day of the week... When they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. A young man named Eutychus, sitting in the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until the daybreak. So he departed. And they took the youth still alive, uh, took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. That's really the only insight into a worship service we have in the New Testament. Actual, you know, here's something that happened in a worship service on a particular day and so forth. We have passages that talk about what we're supposed to do in worship, how we're supposed to do it. Uh, But we don't have examples very much. That's why when we take the Lord's Supper, a lot of times we go to Acts 20 verse 7. Because that is the example of how they did it. Now, it seems, and this is understandable, that the Christians did not have set worship times like we do on a Sunday. That they spent the majority, if not all day together on Sundays. And that when people had to work, they came and went as they, they would. That's why in 1 Corinthians we have the passage about the taking of the Lord's Supper and how they were supposed to wait for one another because there were times when people would come and go from the worship service. Uh, now, today we live in a different culture. We live in a time-scheduled culture. And so we have times that we meet. Uh, the tradition, it's not biblical to have... Two services, but the tradition is all but impossible to find out where it came from. Uh, there are there are assumptions that it started with. Uh, in, it, we know it started in America, but there are assumptions that it started before the Industrial Revolution, when people were working and working on their farms, and they would need to go and you know feed the chickens and stuff, and come to worship, and then they'd have to go home to do something at lunchtime, they'd come back that evening after all the work was done. Um, There are implications and assumptions that it started uh, during uh, World War I or World War II, and that it it had something to do with shift work. No one knows why we got to the point in America where tradition is that a church has two worship services. That tradition is going away, by the way. Um, but no one knows where it came from. The question is not, is it a tradition? Well, it's a tradition, then we throw it away, unless it's in the Bible. That's not the question we should be asking. The question we should be asking is, is it helpful? Is it expedient? Is it something that is good for us to do? And that answer, of course, everyone that's here would understand, yes, it is good, because we have another time to worship, another time for fellowship, Another time to spend, um, spend time in study and so forth. Um, but no, it is not, it's not in the Bible. 
and it's not a tradition that needs to be rejected. I'm, I worry that sometimes we just, if it's a tradition, we either keep it so close that we're scared to do anything about it, we're scared to change it at all because it's a tradition, or on the opposite side of the pendulum, if it's a tradition, we just want to throw it away. Those, those two things can't happen. Traditions are good as long as they're beneficial. This one is beneficial. All right, now, question number three, last but not least. Why is it acceptable for a woman to speak or ask a question in Bible class, but then if it is leading a prayer in the same class setting, people understand? Sorry, let me reword this. Let me reread this. Why is it acceptable for a woman to speak or ask a question in Bible class, but then if then it is not if leading a prayer in the same class setting? Please understand, I don't think a woman should, should because it is safer than sorry, but I'm curious to see if there's a specific scripture about this. And this was asked um, in another church, and I added this to ours as well. So the question is, why, can a, why is it sinful for a woman to, to speak in worship service or even to lead a prayer in a Bible study when women are accepted, at least in our culture, of asking questions, answering questions, reading Bible verses, and so forth. And the answer lies in the word lead. Why can a woman not lead a prayer in a Bible class that she is able to speak and answer questions and read Bible verses and so forth? And the answer is the word lead. We understand the scriptures teach that a woman is not to have authority over a man. It is very clear. You know, that statement that I always say, God gave us a Bible and a brain, and sometimes we have to use common sense. It's very clear when we're in a Bible setting, in a Bible study setting, and I or Forrest or Jim or whoever's teaching that study asks a question. It's very clear who's leading that study, right? Um, if, If I or Forrest or Jim or whoever's leading that study asks for a Bible verse to be read, it's very clear who's leading that Bible study. And that is the man who's teaching that Bible study. Um... That is different than leading in a prayer. Because leading in a prayer is leading. And second, First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 says that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. There's one passage that talks about it. But also the, the idea of leading is dangerous. Now that brings the question, what, what, if, what if all the men are accepted, accepting that that woman is doing that Bible study? that prayer, or even leading that Bible study. You know, all the men are accepting of that. All the men are allowing her to do that. She's not usurping my authority. I'm letting her, so she's not usurping. Okay, he gave us a Bible and a brain. If that is the case, and that is an argument that's used on a regular basis, that's okay because all the men or the eldership at so-and-so congregation says it's okay for her to do that, and so she's not leading, she's being led. If that's the case, I'm going to argue that the problem there is not that the woman is leading service. The problem is that the men will not stand up and lead services. That's the real issue there. Now, is there a problem with her doing that? Yes, there is, because she's still leading. Um, But look at the sickness, not the symptom 
the symptom is that they're allowing it to happen. The sickness is that they're not stepping up and doing their responsibility. And uh, I think it's very obvious um, that, that men need to step up and, and take that responsibility. Now, that being said, turn to Acts chapter 18, because I do believe that there is a, a scriptural reason for this. And this isn't just me talking. This is, this is um, coming from scripture as well. Acts 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but Priscilla and Aquila, or your translation may say Prisca and Aquila, in some sections or even in this section, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of the Lord more accurately. And when he wished to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to, to the disciples to welcome him. All right, now, why did Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos? Some people will say, well, he's not a Christian yet. He's not baptized for salvation under the baptism of Jesus Christ. I agree. But he's still a disciple. He's still a follower of God. He's eloquent in the scriptures. He's, he's uh, competent in the scriptures. Rather, he's eloquent in speech. He, um, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, verse 25. He is still a disciple. He may not have been baptized yet, but at the same time, you realize that the time period they're going through is still the switching over of the guard, as it were, from the baptism of John to the baptism of Jesus. He's not saved, but he knew the scriptures. And Priscilla had an active part in teaching him. We don't know what kind of active part. But the fact that Paul mentions Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is the female, Aquila is the male, both of them teaching him means that she had something to do with that teaching. That she was taking part in that. Maybe she wasn't leading it. Given other scriptures, we can see that chances are she probably wasn't leading in that study. But she was helping. She was encouraging. She was being there and taking part in that teaching. And that was acceptable. But we have no indication to say that she was leading that service or that study, which is important. Um, seeing as scriptures make it pretty clear about the leading of, of, of services. So those are our three questions uh, this month. So if you have any questions, maybe you're reading through the book of Genesis this week and uh, you come across a question that you have never thought about. Maybe it's a question you've always thought about. It's perfectly fine. Uh, write it down and put it in the box. And um, we will have our next uh, question answer session uh, next month. So if there's someone here that needs to repent of sins and ask uh, for salvation through baptism, then um, we're ready to, to help you with that. We'll, we'll take care of that and uh, do whatever we can to help you. And if you need to repent of sins, let us know that as well as we stand and sing.